If you're not making anything except paperwork, if it's real people making things that you heard, if your office is a broom closet somewhere in the state of Texas, we'll all line up in a big row to punch your solar plexus and destroy. Hello and welcome to the Tech Dirt Podcast. Once again, I am Mike Masnick. Last week, we discussed the problems with the patent system with Dennis Yang and Hirsch Reddy. Hirsch, who is actually a patent attorney, agrees with me that the system is really, really broken. And as we discussed, many other patent attorneys feel that way too, though not many of them will admit so publicly. This week, we discuss if the system is salvageable, and if so, how to possibly fix it. There are reasonable arguments to be made that we'd be better off without a patent system at all. Others argue that maybe we just need a patent system for a few key areas, such as pharmaceuticals. And that's one that I also do disagree with, but we may do that in a future podcast. There's a big attempt at patent reform happening right now in Congress, which focuses specifically on court reform, targeting patent trolls, basically making it potentially more expensive for patent trolls. These trolls rely on the fact that even defending against a completely bogus patent in court would likely cost upwards of a million dollars, and they use that to demand settlement figures in the tens or hundreds of thousands of dollars, correctly assuming that many companies know it's going to be cheaper to settle than to fight. Uh, patent reform in that area can help, but I'd argue that's really just, uh, that really fixing the patent system needs to go much, much further. Some think that we can solve problems by simply outlawing software or business method patents entirely, leaving patents limited to actual hardware or physical inventions. Though there are some worries that Smart patent attorneys would uh, quickly figure out ways to write their way around such changes. Some, like Professor Mark Lemley, have argued that the U.S. Patent Office needs to start paying attention to the actual law and recognize that functional claiming is not allowed. And in more common language, that means writing broad patents that can claim monopoly rights over entire functions rather than specific narrow inventions should not be allowed. Uh, beyond patent reform in the courts, there have been some really interesting attempts by various companies, uh, especially in Silicon Valley, to try and fight back against patent trolling on their own. Twitter has its inventor's patent license, which gives engineers the right to freely license any patent they get, thus blocking those patents from ever being used by trolls. A bunch of companies have gotten together to create a defensive patent license, which is effectively an effort to pool together lots of patents to block trolling attempts. Many of those same companies and some others have also supported a license on transfer network in which they automatically agree that if a patent is later sold to a third party, an automatic license issues to all members of the network. And then other efforts include things like uh, Unified Patents, which is an organization that tries to invalidate all questionable patents in a particular field, such as cloud computing or mobile. And then there are efforts like Newegg's, where they publicly proclaim that they will not settle with patent trolls and then proceed to drag any patent troll through the legal system, thus hopefully scaring off future patent trolls from sending them demand letters in the first place. 
Life360, a startup social network, recently succeeded in following in Newegg's footsteps and actually using some of the same lawyers, and even took it one step further, promising to fund the legal defense of any other startup sued by the same patent troll that sued Life360. All of these are interesting attempts at solutions, but let's see if we can come up with some better ones. Uh, once again, we've got Dennis Yang and Hirsch Reddy, and we'll start out by asking Hirsch, <laughs> do you think the patent system can be saved? And if so, how? Wow, this is a, that's a really tough question to ask a patent attorney. <laughs> uh, because, you know, to some extent, I really hope there'd be a way to save the patent system, because that means I have job security. <laughs> um, but to some extent, you know, you know, I'll backtrack on this in a second, but, but to some extent, I think the, the simplest way, if you ignore sort of the political aspect of this, mm -hmm. of, of, if you ignore the aspect of what could realistically be passed through our legislature, you know, ignoring that completely, the easiest solution would just be to say software is not patentable. Period. Okay. Now I'm going to play devil's advocate okay. and say, well, the problem with that, which I've heard from lots of people, is that there's nothing defined in patent law, what is a software patent? So how do you define what is a software patent versus a business method patent versus other kinds of patents? Well, I would definitely extend that software patent thing to business method patents as mm -hmm. well. Um, if, you, if you say that it's difficult to draw that line, yeah. then there's also an equally difficult line to draw today between pure mathematical formulas and algorithms and software patents. But we don't let that stop us from doing software patents. So there will be a sticky problem there, but we'll resolve it the same way we resolve other sticky problems in the patent system today, which is to basically, you know, it just pushes the yeah, ball. Well, well, but it, it, you're throwing the, yourself on the mercy of the courts, which have not been great. Yeah, but you know what? If you said there was no software patents allowed, there'd be a large number of current patents that would very clearly be invalidated, okay. right? Right, And that would really help things. Um, if, if, you, if you want to talk about a comprehensive solution mm -hmm. that's even more unlikely to get passed, <laughs> you just get rid of patents completely. But that is never going to sure. happen, right? I mean, the pharma industry is very powerful. Um, so here's the thing. Okay, so those are, let's, just, let's just assume that those solutions are not possible. Okay. okay? I think we can both agree, having been here in Silicon Valley for a while, that that's not going to happen. So how do we, do we solve the you know, the problem of the way the patent system is working today with the tools that we have today. So the number one way you do it is by writing great briefs which convince the Supreme Court to make certain tweaks in the law without right. requiring anything to go through the Congress. And, and just also for background, for people who haven't followed this, for, um, well, okay, I'm going to go back a little far mm -hmm. here, but mm -hmm. like in the early 80s, mm -hmm. we set up a separate uh, appeals court that yeah. all patent cases went to the federal circuit the federal circuit or CAFC mm -hmm. uh, and for many years the Supreme Court did not review any patent cases kind of saying well mm -hmm. those are sort of mere business problems that mm -hmm. don't really interest the Supreme Court which takes on special cases and we leave all those to the federal circuit and the federal circuit used that opportunity <laughs> to expand 
patentable subject matter massively in a variety of different ways with a variety of different cases. Can we take a segue into sort of the agency problems of why that might happen in a regulatory? Sure, let's let's go down that road yeah. quickly. Okay. <laughs> but, but go ahead. Yeah, so I, what I wanted to say about that is imagine what happens when you create a court that's specifically for one type of subject, subject mm-hmm. matter and the prestige of that court has to do with that subject matter and the people that go into that court are people that have practiced in that subject matter. Do they have have an incentive to reduce the importance of that subject matter in the American regulatory framework or in the economy? No, it's the exact opposite. They, they want to make it bigger, more important, have more prestigious clients in their courts. I mean, these are just human beings. This is yeah. the danger of that. And, and this will and, probably segue into your story yeah. about why the Supreme Court started. And then, and then the other part of that is in two aspects is that also all of the people that they tend to deal with, right? They're not dealing with the engineers who are actually doing the innovation. They're dealing with the patent attorneys who have yep. an institutional and, you know, job <laughs> you know, keeping, ba- you know, bias for, exactly. for expanding this thing. And the other fact of the matter is that one of the, the I may have been the very first chief uh, judge on the federal circuit was also a former patent attorney who had helped write the 1956 Patent Act. Mm-hmm. And so he had every reason in the world for his own personal legacy to sort of expand the, 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 the system. But uh, so, so they sort of continued to expand the system and created a whole bunch of the problems that we and see today. E- and even if we don't have that sort of agency problem stuff, no. there's also just the question of like, if you put, if you pack a court full of true believers, yeah. right? Nobody's going around getting a Mike Masnick onto the court, right? Like you would never make it. And, you, and, you'd be but, too much and, of an extremist. Yeah, right? and, and yeah. Or even Lemley, right? Like Lemley sure. especially. There's no way he gets on that court. Sure. I mean, he's an extremist from their point of view. <laughs> yeah, and, 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 but, but and this is an important tangent, even if it's a tangent, because people are still actually suggesting this, again, as a potential solution. And I've heard this before, it creates specialized courts. So part of the argument that people make is, oh, the reason you have all these problems with the patent system is because the judges don't understand the sort of technological mm-hmm. issues. And yet, we, we know what happens when you do that, because that's exactly what we did with the federal circuit, and they just kept expanding the patent system. And yet, we still hear it now. They're talking about, oh, maybe we should create special judges at the, at the district court level who just handle patent cases, and you're going to get the same thing. Exactly. Or in Europe, you have people saying, like, oh, maybe we should have a special you know, patent court that will, will handle patent cases because they'll understand the technical mm-hmm. issues better. And yet... We know we've had you know whatever thirty it's, it's thirty a, years thirty five years of that. It's a pretty counterintuitive thing that happens in organizations, yeah. right? Like you don't think about those kinds of problems. Actually, I've heard a similar argument against bifurcating the patent system and putting one set of standards for pharma and a separate set of standards for software. And the reason people don't want to do that, or the argument against doing that, is to say that if we did that, then the patent system would quickly split into maybe a much more liberal sort of software patent system and extremely strict and maybe out of hand sort of pharma patent system. And the reason that's kept in balance right now is because these two sets of industries are you know, put into one basket. Yeah. And and mm-hmm. and if you think about it the same way, you know, you, you could get the same kind of problems. And those are again like sort of second order effects that you don't think yeah. about. And 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 even I mean to that point, I that's one of the worries that I have about focusing on software patents. Not not even, you know, to all the way to the extreme of the pharmaceutical side of things, but you know, there have been a whole bunch of, you know, hardware startups lately and things like mm-hmm. Kickstarter and 3D printing have enabled, you know, a mm-hmm. sort of a new world of hardware sh- startups that are going to be facing, and some of them are already facing many of these same patent issues. And if we just focus on, you know, carving out the software patent part of it, then we're not really, you know, 
we're not really dealing with the, the true symptoms, the true, you know, or we're, we're just focusing on the symptoms in the software space, but not the true, you know, causes of the problems of the patent system. And so I think it, it helps to go deeper and look at ways to fix the, the patent system more deeply. And I'm going to get to my mm-hmm. personal suggestion in a second, but I still want to get to the Supreme Court mm-hmm. <laughs> because we, we started to go down that path. And that was that. So after basically two decades of the federal circuit expanding um, patents and everything about patents over and over again, and the Supreme Court basically ignoring it, suddenly, you know, I guess at this point, it was about almost 10 years ago, mm-hmm. the the Supreme Court suddenly got very interested in the federal circuit and patents and has taken a series of cases almost every session uh, having to do with patents and almost every single one, there are a few exceptions, but not many, where the, the Supreme Court completely smacking down the federal mm. circuit and saying you're wrong and and pushing back on some of the the extremes that we lived with for two decades because of the federal circuit or to re- restate that too they're pushing back on the expansiveness yeah. of what you can patent how you can use the patents yeah and in yeah, fact so. i mean it's it's fairly incredible because i mean there was one i forget which case it was but i believe it was one of the ones last year where the supreme court ruling and i think it was I can't remember which justice it was, but maybe Sotomayor. Talking like, about Alice then? No, not Alice. It was before Alice. And and it was and it actually said basically like this, you know, is a fundamental like misreading or misunderstanding of patent law. Mm-hmm. Like basically suggesting like if you actually understood the the most basic concepts of patent law, you would not do this. Mm-hmm. It was, a, I mean, it's pretty insulting <laughs> for yeah. the Supreme Court to say that about the federal circuit and the and the people of the federal circuit. You know, the judges on the on the federal circuit are not happy about. It. I mean, I've heard them very publicly sort of you know, talk about being, you know, year after year being shamed by the Supreme Court. <laughs> and, and to some extent, if you really think about it, there's not a whole. I mean. Look, there's, there's, lower courts are supposed to obey what the Supreme Court says, yep. but there's enough leeway in what you can do with human language because it's not a very precise device. It's not like writing code. There's sure. always leeway. When a, when a decision is reversed by the Supreme Court, goes back to either a district court or to the federal circuit, there's always leeway where you can like make provisions to keep things essentially working the same as they always have, but with some language tweaks essentially, right? Or or like just kind of, you kind of move things around a little bit and the end result where the rubber meets the road in Silicon Valley is the same as it's always been. And, you know, giving you one example of that, Alice was a famous decision from, from 2014 and in Alice, the Supreme Court very clearly kind of said, like, look, you should not allow patent claims where someone does something in real life and essentially says, hey, this thing that we can do in real life, let's just do it in a computer, essentially. Mm -hmm. And that is not something that we're going to allow a patent for. And they clearly said that. And yet still, just this year, I think the USPTO allowed another patent, which was something along the lines of, like, uh, I read in the news, and if I misstate these claims, I'm sorry because I, I'm doing this from memory, but it was something along the lines of uh, an electronic method of getting permission for somebody's <laughs> child to go on a trip or something like that, mm-hmm. where you like, you know, you, you, you ask the parent for permission for the field trip, and then the parent does some kind of a response, and it goes to a server, and then it says, that, okay, this kid has permission to go on the trip, something like that, something which you could do in real life, right? Yeah. That's exactly, specifically what they no. said you can't do, right? And so... Somewhere between the Supreme Court 
And what the USPTO is actually doing, there's a disconnect. So it's not like the Supreme Court says something and it's the law of the land. Yeah, yeah. it's supposed to be the law but, of the but, land. But but to be fair, right, so in the wake of the Alice ruling last year, which has been less than a year ago, mm-hmm. um, you know, the, it has had a huge impact. And, and certainly a number of courts, both district courts and the circuit court, the, the, um, the federal circuit, have been much more quick to reject patents and to cite the Alice ruling. Um, the patent office has been rejecting more patents based on that, though they are still letting some through and they've been adjusting and sort of trying to figure out where things, where things lay. And the number of um, patent lawsuits dropped significantly in the second half of last year. So, you know, what, what is definitely true is that the, the Supreme Court has had an impact and the Alice ruling being a big one, but but certainly some of the other rulings in the past few years have also had an impact. So there is one argument, and this is an argument that some make pretty strongly, that we should just focus on bringing those kinds of cases, letting the Supreme Court work out things, and hopefully that will patch up the patent system um, you know, as we go, rather than trying to focus on, on reform in Congress. Um. You know, to some extent, you know, maybe that's fair to basically say, I mean, I can understand the argument which basically says, hey, look, if we, you know, there wasn't just Alice, it was also Octane Fitness, right, Mm -hmm. which is a great uh, case about um, when it's appropriate to shift fees from the person bringing a patent case. That's the one where where they completely insulted the the federal circuit in Octane. Okay. Um, So in that situation, like, if if the court makes it very liberal, uh, the situations in which somebody who's defending a patent suit can basically say, hey, you who has brought the patent suit now has to pay for my lawyers. Mm-hmm. That is obviously a huge disincentive. And, that, and also, just to bring it back around, mm-hmm. that is, that's a big part of the patent reform bill that's in Congress. Mm-hmm. And that's actually because the reform bill in Congress tries to take that even further and basically says if you're bringing mm-hmm. a bogus patent lawsuit mm-hmm. that you can shift what's called fee shifting and sh- and make the the person who or the right. know, patent holder who brings the case mm-hmm. pay the legal fees of the other party mm-hmm. and that's also the the factor that killed the bill last year which came very very close mm-hmm. to getting approved is that the one where the trial lawyers association so called the, in? The trial lawyers at, at the last minute, like literally, at you know late in the evening when the bill was basically done and everyone thought it was going through and completely set. There was a phone call apparently, and this has been discussed mm-hmm. publicly by many people from the trial lawyers association saying we don't want anything to do that advances fee shifting and the idea that the losers in a in a lawsuit should have to. Well, let's let's walk through that through that logic there of why that why that's sure. the case because I don't think it'll be uh, you know readily understandable by by everyone. So let's just get to why that the trial lawyers are so defensive about that. In a world in which you cannot recover attorneys' fees, mm-hmm. somebody is much more likely to bring a lawsuit because he doesn't right, yes. have the the especially if if he can find a lawyer that will take it on contingency right. which is which is another issue which is that many of the patent trolling lawsuits are what's known as contingency, contingency lawsuits and right. contingency lawsuit is a lawsuit which you bring and you do not have to pay the the patent attorney mm-hmm. or sorry the, the 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 litigator because he will uh, take his fees out of whatever he wins right and from the lawyer's point of view don't think that they're doing it for charity <laughs> they basically run 10 cases at the same time and if five of them win then they've made their money for the year and it's kind of a probability thing or so, or one giant you know, one giant one, exactly. Yeah. You win a billion dollars, great. So, so the thing is, is when you have fee shifting, those kinds of calculations become difficult for the lawyer, and they mm-hmm. become difficult for the client as well, because think about this. Now, right now, if you lose a lawsuit, 
If there is no fee shifting, you never have to pay anyone any money. You mm-hmm. only have the chance of an upside. Yeah, right. But if you might possibly have to pay for the other person's stuff, then you have to sort of, it's like you actually have to pay yeah. the casino. You got to pay the casino. And, and, so, there's, yeah. and there's no risk, right? There's, so. there's no risk. But it, and it also changes the calculation of, of another part of the equation, which is that many of these patent trolls don't want to litigate anyway, right? Mm-hmm. They're just sending threat letters and they want you to pay them off so that they never right. actually have to go to court. And, and know, people don't litigate against them because even if they win, they, they don't win. get anything for it. The exactly. most they can get is a dismissal. But right. now, if they can which, actually which get which costs money still. Yeah. Right, so. so if you right. can get the attorneys, so it changes the whole equation. So yep. so why is it that the trial lawyers association would be so hell bent on stopping that fee shifting? It's because it will dry up the number of cases that come into their offices. Yeah. Yep. That is why they don't want that. So, so how are they able to get that stopped then? They well, you the, call, the, uh, they have to call out the you call, you call Harry Reid. So, so <laughs> oh, you said it. You said it. <laughs> no, it's it, the, the, the traditionally speaking, the trial lawyers have a very uh, strong connection to the Democratic Party, and Harry yeah. Reid in particular, who was the Senate Majority Leader until the Senate shifted from being a Democratic majority to a Republican majority, and so this year that's probably not going to be an issue because they can't just call up someone to block it. They can cause other trouble, but not enough. They don't have enough power to block it. So right. it, was, it was a political thing, completely well, political thing. And if you think about it from the import, unfortunate view of the sort of on, entrepreneurs in Silicon Valley, yeah. the interests of the lawyers who are defending you in these suits, even the ones who are defending you in these suits, is diametrically opposed to your interests because <laughs> yeah. they need clients that require defense. Yep. So even though they may see these absurd cases and be like, oh, I really, it would be great for my lawyer in this baseless lawsuit for his, my fees to be paid by the opposing party, in the long term, they're not going to want to fight for that kind of a reform because in the long term, there won't be other clients because right. no one will bring these suits. So it's not like even the lawyers with the intimate details of how flawed the system is, <laughs> how ridiculous the baseless claims are that are brought in these cases, they just don't. They don't talk about it. You know who talks about it? Mostly the lawyers that talk about it are the in-house counsel. Right. Who, who now don't have it, you know, they don't have any link to a law firm. They can, to some extent, if they've already made money in stock options or whatever, they, they can actually just, they don't care about their, essentially their legal relationships, yeah. right? Right. There's only a few lawyers that are going to like actually talk about this and still, you know, firm lawyers are not going to talk about this. You will be crapping on your, <laughs> on your legal network, right? Like you don't do that. <laughs> So, so uh, and, and, that, and that network is so important for a lawyer's career in terms of getting into another firm and, you know, you become a pariah if you start talking about these things. So it's, it's so weird because all the lawyers who are working on defense, if you, if you look at their dialogue internally with each other when they're defending a case, they are all about, this is ridiculous and, and all that stuff. Yeah. But you, you can't talk about that kind of case stuff. Well, number one thing is like the confidentiality thing. But sure. even after the case... People, people don't come out and talk about it. And, but that's exactly the kind of dialogue that you would need right. to, to, actually, to get public, you know, the public support behind sort of reforming some of these things. And you even have, I mean, you have crazy cases. I had a discussion with a, a, um, a patent attorney who just does defensive cases. Um, but, you know, what he was saying was he knows that these are all ridiculous. But at the same time, he sees the, the patent troll lawyers making so much money. And he's like, 
it's really tempting, yeah, right? I mean, the system yep. is so obvious and so easy to, to game that he's just like, it's really tempting to just buy a bunch of patents and just yep. become a patent troll and just make so much money off of it. And I've been you getting know. offers for exactly <laughs> that. I mean, I'm never going to get an offer again after this podcast. But <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I've written stuff on the internet too. But I, I mean, any, I mean, it, the money's silly money, right? Like yeah. for that kind of stuff. I mean, from, from a lawyer's point of view, right? I mean, yeah. it's, 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 which, which, you know, brings up another issue, which is, you know, and because of the way the patent system works today, there you know you look at the, and there are reports that like your the average smartphone or something mm-hmm. includes like two hundred thousand patented things, right? And you think about that and you say, well, what is a reasonable license for any you know any one of those patents or any particular of those patents? And you know you would drive the price of a smartphone you know to ridiculous levels, and yet. You know, whenever you see a patent suit, they ask for like everything. You know, they ask for huge sums of money mm-hmm. that, if you added it all up, you know, would would be many, many times the actual price of of the phone. Of the phone, or or you know, and that's that's just one example. And it's you have these sort of patent thickets in all sorts of areas. It's it's basically like so. Part of the thing about of, of why of why just doing the fee shifting might not be enough, mm-hmm. and why getting rid of quote-unquote bad patents might not be enough is because for something like a smartphone, I feel like even from an engineer's point of view, there's a huge space of quote-unquote valid patents that you you could write about something, right? Like actually technically difficult sounding stuff tied to hardware, exactly the kind of stuff that some eastern district of Texas jury is going to be like, oh man, this is crazy science. Like those kinds of things. You could probably write like a thousand things, right? Sure. And... And, and not that those things are, you know, helping sort of phones advance or something like that. It's just somebody sitting in a garage and writing these things, but you could write them, right? And and if you look at the kinds of stuff that, like, patent trolls actually go out and litigate with, some of, the, are, some of those things are the kinds of those kinds of things, right? Yeah. And what you need there to sort of, one of the ways you could get rid of those kinds of patents is something that isn't even discussed in patents, right, right now, which is having an independent invention <laughs> defense, right? Yes. Okay. This is what I was going to get to, and I wanted to make sure we got to it before, before the, the end of this podcast. And yes. Go right? for it, and then I'll sound off on so, this. So too. an independent invention defense is basically saying that if somebody can't prove that you actually essentially looked at their stuff and were inspired by it, if you did it in your own lab, with sort of clean room style, with having no access, or in other words, if you guys both developed it simultaneously in time, mm-hmm. those kinds of things, you shouldn't be able to prevent someone else from practicing that technology. Yep. Um, and we don't have that. But you know, if you look at other kinds of intellectual property, like something like like music, uh, independent, co- copyright, you do. You you, you have an the, independent, yeah. No, although no. it doesn't quite the, work. No, it doesn't work. There is just <laughs> a ruling that was uh, the, kind of a mess. The Pharrell on song, the right? blurred lines. Yeah, yeah but yeah. maybe that's another patent, another yeah. podcast yeah. discussion. <laughs> but 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 so I actually wanted to. So I, I agree, and actually the independent. Uh, inventor's defense, I think, is a huge thing that doesn't get enough attention and I think really should. But I actually think it would be really interesting to take it even further, which is in today's patent system, under the law today, it's very, very clear that you are only supposed to get a patent on uh, an invention that is both non-obvious to those who are skilled mm. in the art um, and, uh, and, and something that's new, right? Mm. And so that non-obvious to someone who is skilled in the that's, art never even comes into play. Never right? even comes into play, it's right? Ev- ev- well, no, no, no. But here's the thing, right? So everyone focuses on the new part, right? So they always look for prior art because mm-hmm. prior art can, can 
you know, mm. can answer the new question. But the non-obvious one, no one ever discusses that. I think an independent invention by others in the space is evidence that it is, is that obvious, it is obvious, obvious to those skilled in the art because yeah. multiple people yeah. are inventing it. Yeah. And so Lindley I said something like that, right? Yeah. I, I don't know if he yeah. did or not, yeah. but he should, it's right? And, and very common sense. I, I think that someone potentially could make a really strong case if you know if we could find the good case that rather than just using independent invention as a defense mm-hmm. which right now is not allowed use independent invention as a, as proof, a proof of obviousness yeah. and i think that would be a really really interesting way and then i actually think that would solve a huge, huge number, number of, of problems, problems with yeah. the patent system because then yeah. you have a people then the the case that everyone worries about the sort of classic Thing that people mm. think about with the patent system of somebody taking something and copying it, yeah. that that situation is still covered by, by the patent system. It only goes away for the cases where someone is coming up with something on their own completely mm. and and innovating on their own. Yeah. And so I, yeah. I'm I a, love that a I, huge I like, proponent, and I think that's yeah. that's like the most frustrating case of a patent suit, right? That yeah. it's like no, it's like I didn't look at this patent at all. I came right. up with it on my own, exactly. and or, or and yeah. even you know beyond that, like this patent has nothing to do with really what I'm doing. It just yeah. sort of touches on something. Exactly, exactly. The podcast patent would not survive, right? The independent you <laughs> <Yeah>. know, invention <laughs> thing. So that you know that's great, and and you wonder why it doesn't come up. Yeah, you know, and and I have no answer for that. Like I mean. I mean, is the answer with like what you said? We need someone needs to find a case that. Yeah, I think some someone would need to, to really test a good that. But 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 part it, of the problem is you know it's like how do you I mean, see the thing is one case of independent invention would not be enough. Obviously, the that wouldn't be enough. It, you would need a family of those cases. Yeah. And I think only now do we have the technology to kind of mine large amounts of source code, like in places like GitHub, yeah. to find multiple instances of some kind of a technique. I mean, is, is, is there like a log or like, I mean, chilling effects is kind of the, the thing on the, on the DMCA side. Mm-hmm. Is there something where, is someone keeping track of all of these, no. these patents? Um, is that, would that be helpful? Yeah, well, somewhat. Yeah. There is someone, actually EFF did set up something called trolling effects. Okay. Um, which is like chilling effects, so it's a little more limited. But that's really just focused on the on patent troll demand letters, right? Not necessarily patent troll nah, lawsuits. I mean, but which, as a lawyer, I'm going to tell you, people don't go out there once they get a demand letter and like let the whole world and investors know. Oh right. my God, we got a demand letter. People, but maybe they people, should, right? Like, that's, yeah, that and that, seems but, like, which which was the point of trolling effects, which yeah. is because you had that problem where mm-hmm. nobody knew that everybody else was getting yeah. these demand letters, to, and so they yeah. couldn't sort of team up to fight back. So the right. the hope was to to generate interest in that. I don't know if it's worked. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, hopefully, more stories like the Life 360 thing will kind of yeah. embolden. Companies I, to do man, to, to talk out you that know? take takes balls and that guy should yeah. get a medal for doing that. <laughs> I mean, if people don't know the background of it, basically it's like a relatively small company. It's not small. They had some, yeah, uh, they raised, had some investment. Yeah, I don't know, like ten mil or something like that. I think it was forty million. Forty mil. Yeah, okay, so you can you, you can actually fight a patent case when you get forty mil. When you have forty mil, you can fight the case so strongly that other people don't want to come after you. But yeah. if you don't have 40 mil, if you have one or $2 million or even yeah. just five, you, you can't do that. Well, you can though. I mean, so like, um, what's his name? Uh, Drew C- Curtis. Yeah. At, with at, Fark. At yeah. Fark. You know, he got sued for patent infringement mm-hmm. and he's just like a one man shop and he, yeah. but is he a rich one man? He's not that rich, yeah. but he, but, but he has, a, he has a large platform with which to, and he was uh, very, shout. very, so, very vocal about it. Yeah. And or he, Adam Carolla, I guess, did the same thing. Yeah, yeah, and a few others. And but you know, in both of those cases, they they did both Adam Carolla and and Drew yeah. at Fark. They did settle, mm-hmm. but um, you I know, I wish Adam Carolla didn't. I mean, I, it would have been yeah. much more cool if he was like, you know, 
with his personality. He was like, going to take, take it to this. The bag. To, yeah. But um, at least with, with Fark, I mean, he did the deal that, um, you know, that didn't, they wouldn't, he wouldn't allow a gag order on yeah. the settlement. So he got to he say what the settlement him. was, which was he didn't pay a damn thing um because most of them do have gag orders so they can't even say it and he was very very vocal and public about it and so i think others you know are being inspired to do those kinds of things and so i'm hopeful that we'll see more and more activity of that and i like the the life 360 thing also saying that Mm -hmm. he'll pay for others who are sued by that same troll because then you can wipe out a single troll in in one shot Mm -hmm. um but anyways these are these are ideas to work on i think we have a lot more to talk about but we're also pretty much out of time yeah. uh so once again another interesting conversation i think we're going to have to have another week maybe <laughs> not next week but um we'll have some more discussions on patents and patent trolling and patent solutions and all of that kind of thing um, but once again thank you very much for listening and thank you guys for joining us again thank you Bye. Bye.